I am a human being and I killed human beings. Before I knew it, I'd fired four shots at the door. I kept on shouting for Reva to phone the police. Tests are underway to determine if a serial killer is on the loose in Centurion, Pretoria. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you got to worry about. In South Africa, 58 people are murdered every day. These are the stories of the criminals and the people who hunt them. I think society deserves to be protected from me and from others like me. My name's Paul Llewellyn and I'm curious about Africa's killers, criminals and the cops who catch them. Joining me to discuss crime on the continent is Jared Labiskachny, the former cop and current head of LNS Threat Management, who led the investigative psychology section of the South African Police Service from 2001 until 2016. In his time there, he worked on over 300 serial murder and rape cases, and he is the profiler. So, after two weeks of catching up, discussing the state of crime in general and the state of the nation, and of course, talking to Gerard about his uh, his work on his novels. Today we are back to doing what we do and discussing an interesting local crime that took place um, in KwaZulu-Natal and which Gerard has very first-hand experience of having been involved in the case from relatively early on in the investigation. Before we do that, before we get into the case, I just wanted to wrap up one thing, and I and I want to tell everyone that we're going to be giving away that uh, copy of Jarrah's book, as we promised a very long time ago. Um, so if you want to listen to the end of the show, we'll be announcing who's going to be winning the book at the end of the show, and then we will make arrangements to uh, get that to you. Jared, how are you doing? Good yourself, Paul. I am good, thank you very much. An interesting case today from a mental health perspective. And also, you know, you, I, you, I know you have very first-hand knowledge. You've got to speak to our, um, to, to the criminal responsible uh, who was ultimately responsible for these crimes quite extensively. And you were involved in the actual investigation from quite early on. Mm. I think what we can do to start off is really just set the scene. Where did this take place? Durban. Let's talk a little bit about KZN the nature of crime down there, and um, when exactly we find ourselves? Well, I mean, obviously, KwaZulu-Natal, specifically Durban, also has <clears throat> has had its fair share of murder series throughout the years. You know, from the earliest ones we have, I think back in 1950, um, Elifazium Somi, I think, was operating in the sort of greater Natal area, as it was then kind of called. Um, you know, but jumping forward up to the 90s, we had Sipotwala, um, I think he was operating around Phoenix. Um, I mean, just many, many other serial murders in and around Durban. So it's definitely been a hotspot for, for serial murder over the years. I think it's the top or second, perhaps after Gauteng, when it comes to murders in general, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, so a fair amount of crime. Um, ironically, we, you know, we refer to this as the Brighton Beach Axe murders, but actually none of the cases actually occurred in Brighton Beach. Um, the, the investigation team was sort of from Brighton Beach, uh, Colonel Jason McGray and his team. But the murders kind of actually took place, well, the incidents took place sort of in Below, Montclair, Yellowwood Park, where the suspect lived, Le Montville and Blasey, which are all kind of sort of kind of next to each other um, as you go up along the, uh, I think it's the N2, sort of that area. Um, so that's where the guy was operating. And, and like we typically see with these guys, they operate around where they stay, as that turned out. What is life like in this area? Just give us a sense of kind of um, the people, the folks that reside there. Yeah, I would say kind of the, the majority of the areas uh, would be sort of your middle class kind of areas, you know. Um, 
you know, Malazi perhaps has perhaps a more of a mixture of kind of more sort of informal stuff to middle class. But, um, you know, Lee Gellerwood Plock is quite a decent place. Montclair, Le Mans, and Bilo. Kind of, yeah, again, you're sort of middle class, working class kind of areas. Traditionally, I think those are more your sort of white areas in the old days. Mm. Uh, obviously now more mixed. We'll discover that this is a, a series of crimes that involves an interesting weapon, an axe used in a atypical series of crimes for what you would typically see, see an axe used. Um, also features decapitation, which would normally be associated with in South Africa with Muti killings. Um, we'll get to all of those um, bites and bits of information as we unpack the case. But I think what's a, a good way to get started is to maybe s- explain some of the key characters. So who are the key characters here? Um, and uh, yeah, just who are the cops that we're talking about that were working on this case? So, so the core team, and I mean, always people forget there's, you know, a lot of people behind the scenes that play a role from crime scene people to, you know, the forensics people who process the, the evidence behind the scenes that, you know, so there's a massive team. But the ones I think you could really say are the key operators who are part of the task team would uh, be Lieutenant Colonel Jason McGray. Uh, who was a very experienced uh, investigator at that particular point in time. He'd been trained on our serial murder course back in 2004, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. And he was sort of the, I think it was, if I recall correctly, he was the detective branch commander um, at the time in Brighton Beach. And also, I think he was the acting cluster commander for detectives at that particular point in time. So he was in a pretty good position to sort of take over and kind of get things going. And then he, and was, he could make things happen. He was influential at a, at a local level, so he could get things done, which kind of becomes, you know, becomes a factor later as well. Absolutely, yeah. So it was him, and then he roped in um, then Warrant Officer Morris von der Loy and um, Detective Warrant Officer Rico Naidu. They were sort of, as I said, I would say the key three key individuals who on a day-to-day basis were driving this forward and, you know, doing the sort of, the heavy slog work, like I said, but there's always a team of people behind the scenes that are playing their very important roles um, in this sort of whole process. The, where would these cops kind of come up through the ranks? Where would they gain their experience in investigating these types of crimes? Well, you know, obviously, as I said, you know, Jason had been a, a detective for countless years and, yeah. and had our training in 2004. You know, Marius and uh, Rico and I do were sort of, I think, from those general areas and had been detectives, I think, most of their policing careers and were quite experienced in that point. They weren't sort of new youngsters. Okay. So that's, so those are the folks who are kind of involved. Now, let's, let's get into the crimes. So it is um, on the 20th of March, 2011, that the first crime takes place tell us about it yeah so so we kind of you know um look at this almost like from the order of how the investigation unfolded so you'll see as we go on some crimes were discovered a bit later but were actually in chronologically occurred in a different time order so and that's how investigations go you don't always start you know you know it's just unrealistic to think you're going to end up starting with the first murder that occurred yeah. so um the first one that kind of dropped on the radar that said this this whole case happened over a very contained period. Yeah, so basically eight days in March 2011, we killed four people. Um, and then the previous year, he'd done some other stuff, which unfolded a bit later on yeah. as the investigation kind of... Um, okay, so Tembenkosi Sebekulu. Yeah, so yeah, 20th of March, he's attending a funeral for his brother in Mpangeni. He's from the Durban area, this uh, the area, and in Montclair. And um, his employer says, you know, please, can you come back to work the next day? So he kind of, after the funeral, you know, heads back. 
um, and basically arrives in the, late in the evening nearby and phones his girlfriend to say, hey, you know, must I bring you anything? I'm at the garage. Do you need anything for the house? And she says, yes, please bring me some bread. And that's sort of the last contact she had with him. That's quarter past nine that evening. Um, that was So a he's expected home imminently. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, a, a little while later, she makes a phone call and someone else answers the phone, but that might be jumping a bit ahead. But essentially, kind of around that time, a guy, um, Gildred Donnelly, is driving home along, I think it's Kenyon Howden Road, um, and he kind of notices two people on the right-hand side of the road, and he kind of sees, okay, it looks like these people are fighting or arguing, then one person's lying down, and then he realizes as he gets closer, wow, the one guy's wielding an axe and is basically attacking or chopping the person lying on the ground. So he clearly realizes this is something, you know, a crime taken away. And so he's quite shocked. He drives home and calls the cops and then kind of but later goes back to the scene in his car and kind of sees, kind of keeps, keeps a bit of observation. And another witness around about that time also driving home and he thinks someone's, you know, chopping a snake or something along the mm-hmm. side of the road because he sees him swinging, you know, big object like an axe or a club. And as he gets sort of closer, he sees, my God, but this is a human being that's been attacked and chopped on the ground. So he also kind of stops 50 meters down the road and calls the cops then turns around and goes back. I'm kind of amazed that they kind of both go back. <laughs> um, and and how did they describe this this person? Um, they both described him as, you know, they both got different kind of levels of a look at the individual. Mm. They said it was obviously described a black male, big guy, um, well-built, etc., dark clothing that he's wearing. Um, and, um, you know, one says that he saw like a small silver gray car drive off. Um, and he was able to identify that driver later on at an ID parade. The first guy couldn't quite sort of get a description of the person's face. The police arrive then and basically find a body lying on the sidewalk, um, his head hanging just by a few strands of tissue to the rest of the body. So clearly the person had literally almost 100% decapitated uh, the individual lying on the on the side of the road and about 11 meters away, the sort of squashed loaf of bread that his girlfriend had asked him to bring was sort of was lying there. The the girlfriend then by ten o'clock she's thinking, well, where's where's my oh, yes. you know where is he? And he's forty five minutes later, and he should have been home within five minutes of that phone call at quarter past nine. And she phones, and of course the cop answers the phone. And you know sometimes cops are really have to wonder how they think. They basically say, you know, we're with him, and we'll bring him to you just now. And she realizes, no, shit, something's gone wrong. And she calls again fifteen minutes later, and another cop answers. And the cop says, no, he's sleeping and we'll, we'll bring him to you once, you know, he wakes up. I'm thinking of all the dumb kind of things you can tell a person. Oh, my, my, my boyfriend's having a, a nap. Where? You know, why? why when you can just tell them that. While my boyfriend's napping next. <laughs> yeah. What would be the appropriate behavior there? I mean, it would simply be to say, listen, we've got your boyfriend's phone and where are you? And we'll send an officer out to speak with you or something. No, or or say, you lines. know, look, you know, there, there's, there's been an incident. Uh, can we come to you? Can you come to, to us? Can we meet station. you at the station probably? Yeah. Um, so anyway, she thinks now clearly there's something very wrong. Well, let's be honest. If you get a call from the, if you phone, if you phone your significant other's phone and a cop answers, not a good sign. it's not a good sign. Yeah, you've either been arrested or an accident or something worse. So she kind of says to employer, she stayed on the property of her employer, says, look, can you please take me to the police station? And on the way to the police station, they actually drive by the murder scene. He's now covered up with a blanket or a space blanket so that she can't see who it is, but she's kind of, she knows that's, that's, that's her, her boyfriend. So she, tra- she does travel on to the police station and they say, yes, there's been sort of an incident and it's back there at that turning circle. And she realizes, you know, okay, well. Okay. 
Um, and basically, that's how she finds out, and she and then they're able to identify goes back, and she sees that's his clothes, and essentially, yeah. he's basically identified. How long? What would have happened then on the crime scene? Reprocessing the crime scene. When you write about this case, um, you reference the fact that they're quite quick on the crime scene. Yeah. Um, what would happen, and why? Why is you know? I think maybe listeners might expect that you know it's going to be taped off, and they're going to be there a day or two, or you know, or, yeah. or for an extended period. No. So basically, I mean, if you look at the witnesses, they kind of and we always have to sort of say the witnesses' times won't necessarily be exactly one hundred percent accurate. But they kind of drive past the scene and make the phone calls around about 20 to 9. And by 9 o'clock, the cops are, are, are there, which I think is, you know, um, or 10 o'clock, sorry. Um, the cops are on the scene, um, which I think is, you know, okay. Um, so normally, the, obviously, the uniform cops in the van will come out. They will then activate the detective on standby who will be dealing with unnatural deaths because there's typically one or two cops at a station that will deal with anything from suicides to car accident deaths to murders. Or, un, or suspicious deaths. Um, and then they would also activate the crime scene guy, which is typically one person who's on standby who comes out to the scene. Um, you know, obviously it depends on the location. If the scene is blocking a busy road, you'd probably find the cops are more inclined to get it sorted out quicker. But also, the you know, the crime scene guys are measured by how quickly they attend to all the scenes. You know, how quickly did you respond to the call and how quickly were you on scene and how quickly could you finish up because also, you're, if you're the standby guy, um, you have, you know, a house breaking also, and a this, and a that, and a that, which is stacking up. So, you know, it's not like we have this luxury where this guy can just spend the whole night doing this crime scene by himself or even a team of people. So, and that's kind of, unfortunately, some of SAPS's structural ways. They do things of measuring people, not how well you've done at a crime scene, but how quickly you get there and how quickly you're done and how quickly you get to the next one. And that, of course, is never great for when you need people to be really paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and so the basically Google they were done in an hour. You know, the, the Amazon warehouse way. Yeah. So, you know, they, they were basically done in one hour of, of them arriving. The scenes handed over, the bodies taken by the mortuary people, and that's, that's kind of it. I think in fairness, you know, it's outside on the side of a road versus a murder of a similar nature inside a house where you would definitely be fingerprinting all over. You know, on the side of the road, you know, you can't fingerprint the tar. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you have to look at each scene, but it's definitely fast. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, it's, you know, I think overseas you would not have had a scene process, a murder scene process that quickly. Look, I mean, we also have a lot of murders. There's a lot of murders to deal with. It's as simple yeah. as that. And you've just got to kind of resource it as per the demand. Obviously, we, you know, we always, we know that resourcing and kind of uh, planning and structure mm. could be a lot better, as we've talked about in the past. Yeah. Um, at this stage, it's, I mean, it's 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 open season on kind of like uh, the thinking about what could have happened here. Mm. Maybe it's somebody who's, uh, you know, it's a guy who's some angry with him. Maybe there's a vendetta. Maybe it's organized criminals. Um, so really, I mean, you wouldn't start making too much of a, too many assumptions mm. at this stage. It's just a horrendous, violent act yeah, in, a, in a strange public yeah. way, you know, not, not very concealed, is it? So, yep. You know, um, let's move on then to to the second case because everything happens on this case quite quickly. quickly. Um, So what happens next? So about two days later, also again late in the sort of evening, um, a bit later than the previous case, Paulus Slongwa is uh, our next victim. And he's basically fined by a member of the public along the side of the road or actually on the middle of a a traffic circle in Le Montville, uh, completely decapitated. The head's nowhere to be seen. 
Um, you know, he's, he's wearing shirt, pants, etc., covered in blood. There's axe marks in the tar on the sidewalk where obviously the axe hit the ground and just like a river of blood leading away from, from his neck um, where the head is missing. So the detect- initial detective arrives in the scene. It uh, does some pretty nice work. This is warrant officer Zakele Mbambo. <clears throat> Jason and his team kind of took over after this because by then now we're saying, right, this is potentially a serial, therefore you need more resources and more ex- you know, people with the expertise in serial. So it was this case, a second case that prompted them to get in touch yep. with you, was it? You know, it was a similar case, similar circumstances, similar victimology, some, very close by. Late at night, you know, that's if you're not thinking that this is zero at that point, you're just not thinking. Yeah. So basically that detective then does the basic inquiries in the houses nearby, which I applaud him for. You know, he didn't think, oh, it's late at night. I don't want to trouble people. He starts knocking. Again, you know, you watch kind of your typical American kind of crime shows where the cops are wearing cameras and what have you. It seems that canvassing the neighborhood, people might think that canvassing the neighborhood is just a absolutely standard practice sadly it's not um and also you have to look at it in the uk you can get like quickly 40 uniform cops to come and knock on every door in the next day or two this would be probably old zakele mumble by himself um, knocking on doors at late at night and you know probably probably people would be irritated with him for doing that but you know we also complain when the cops don't do their jobs so you can't have it both way and he's quickly identified um, he manages to find the victim's wife where she stayed I think the South African police, uh, I think the South African public would make peace with a, an over-efficient police force quite quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and she, the wife, um, you know, common law wife, they've been together for 30 years. And she said, look, I last saw him at, at just, you know, about 1.45 in the daytime when he left to work. I think he was a security guard and he worked at the KFC in Mirabank, which is not too far away. Um and, and that's the last time she'd seen him. Ironically, and this comes up a little bit later when they actually... Let's save that. Yeah, let's, save yeah. that. let's save that bit of information. It's kind of almost next, the next phase. It is nearly, it? Yeah. We're nearly there. So almost separate to this, a homeless person, literally, you know, 40 minutes after the body's been found, a homeless person is walking along looking for food inside dustbins. You know, these sort of cement dustbins on the side of the road that you sometimes get, municipal dustbins, about a kilometer from where the body was found. And he's scrounging in this dustbin and he finds a head <laughs> and, of course, contacts the police. And, of course, that gets to Mbombo's attention and they realize that this is clearly the head from the missing person. I mean, if you're not thinking that at this point, then you're an idiot because we just don't find decapitated people very often. Um, so the most logical arg- argument would be this is probably the head of the guy about a kilometer away. Of course, forensically, you have to compare that and confirm it. But investigatively, I think you can work pretty good in assumption that this is going to be that person's head. And ironically, I mean, this is perhaps what you wanted to allude to, mm. was um, on the advert, the advert on the side of that dustbin was for the very same KFC outlet that he worked at. So this life's little ironies. Yeah, strange. Yeah. Um, there were also two security guards here. So there were two security guards that witnessed this crime, um, but were a little bit reticent to come forward because they were, um, <clears throat> you know, they were concerned that it might be a Muti murder. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, the, the, the further inquiry, so the team gets involved now that I mentioned earlier, and they start to do sort of within a day, knocking around yeah. on further, some doors, etc. And uh, yeah, these, these, they found kind of two sets of witnesses. One was a nearby person who lived nearby and kind of had a view of this, and she was didn't know who to go to firstly and was so scared to come forward. And, you know, we don't often make it easy for people to come forward, and people don't necessarily have the confidence that they're going to come forward and be dealt with appropriately and responsibly and effectively so and also like you sometimes i think people just don't want to inject themselves into something yeah for the 
for the for the uh, you know potential hassles yeah, that they bring safety, into their absolutely. life, let alone having to deal with the police, yeah. who may not be totally open to 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 you. Yeah, so they did find two security guards who had a pretty good view of that area. That's why they went to this particular location and, and knocked on the doors. And they said, yeah, we had seen something, but we were too scared to come forward because they thought, like you say, it was a Muti murder, which is sort of, you know, the, the sort of a ritualized kind of murder to some degree in South Africa that we get for body parts. Um, and then they told the cops that they'd seen a guy, you know, hitting a person, coming back, the silver vehicle. You know, the vehicle turns around, gets out, the suspect gets out again and picks up something at the actual crime scene, puts it in a plastic bag. And that's similar to what the other witness also described. You know, the guy picking up something, putting it in a plastic bag, an orange bag, and then coming back and silver vehicle again. So the, those two groups of witnesses, if you want to call it that, kind of describe something um, sort of quite similar. How did it come to the attention of the police that there'd been an attack earlier that evening? So, yeah, so about um, a day or so later, um, it sort of came to the attention when someone in the community came forward and said, but, you know, there was a similar attack that occurred um, on the 22nd of, of March, which is the same day as this guy who was completely yeah. decapitated, um, that, but the victim had survived. And they kind of traced that individual. And also, you know, this would have probably been, let me just check the times, just before the actual decapitation murder, the successful mm. decapitation murder, where he had tried his first attempt and was unsuccessful. And a guy had been walking sort of along the road. And uh, again, a silver gray Peugeot, as he described, with the Eastern Cape license plates, kind of slowly drove by him and kind of driver looks at him, makes a U-turn, parks. And the big guy gets out the car. All these people describe the suspect as being a really big, staunch guy. Yeah. And some people actually looks like a big rugby player yeah. um, wearing dark clothes. And this guy gets out the vehicle, approaches old Felix Mdluli, starts speaking to him in Zulu and says to him, yeah, I knew we'd meet again and you gave my daughter AIDS. And this guy is looking like, what on earth are you talking about? And the guy pulls out an axe from a plastic bag and swings at old Felix. Uh, he ducks because he's obviously quite nimble and basically just the axe sort of strikes him. <laughs> You know, on the side of his ribcage, and he he gaps it. Yeah. Um, and of course, once these other just do that, guys. Are, yeah. Good advice. If that happens, you run. Okay. Don't yeah. don't stand your ground. Don't be a tough guy. Just get the hell Bolt. out of there. Yeah. And um, the guy runs often, but you know, Felix manages to escape, and he's not really particularly injured. And also described as a big guy, etc. Mm. So once I think the two murders come into the media, both murders were in the media, the public attention very quickly. And the first one was weird. The second one, in the close period of time, was doubly weird. And so I think that then prompted this guy to come forward, and the police again got valuable information. And now so you've then, really got enough to kind of put together. Okay, there's a guy who is. Driving around in a silver car, yeah. looking for people. Big guy. If he's not getting lucky, he's finding somebody else. It's he's yeah. chopping their heads off with an axe. And this is again a very very small geographical area, you know, um, Lamontville again. So it's it's no brainer that you've got a guy who is trying to kill people intentionally. So you don't have to be a Jared Labuschagne to yeah. figure this one out. If anybody who's this podcast would have been able to talking that, about your involvement then. So so. You know, tell us about that kind of initial contact and then you actually going and, and, and engaging with, with the detective team on the case. Yeah. And what were your initial impressions and thoughts and, and engagements on, on, yeah. and what, and what were your next steps moving forward? Well, we were involved the next day, but early in the early hours of the 23rd of March, which would, in other words, a couple hours after this particular murder and the attempted mm -hmm. incident, um, three o'clock in the morning, a guy in his home, 
um, in, I think, Mbilo. And he hears a commotion outside and he sees a guy chopping someone on the ground right outside of, of, of his, his house. And he sort of screams and says, hey, what you doing? You know, turns the light on and the guy kind of looks up. Big guy, again, tall, well-built, bald, about, you know, 30 to 40, flees. And he comes outside of his house and he sees this dead guy. I happened to be actually in Durban at that time for a different investigation with a colleague of mine, Detective Warrant Officer Lutchman from, from um, Hawks um, in, in, in Durban. And I get a phone call from Jason McGray, the colonel, who says, hey, I, you know, we've got a potential problem, a big problem here. And I said, well, that's great. I'm actually in, in Durban and I can you know, come and see you the next, mm. uh, early the next morning. Okay. And he said, that's this, you know, almost this fortuitous, you yeah. know, God smiled upon the situation kind of scenario. Mm. And 24th of March, the day after this early morning murder, I went to go see him. He had four dockets for me to look at. We consulted, we visited the crime scenes. Um, always like to do that because you get a feel for how close and the type of area and how open, how exposed it is and how risky the person is being in committing these crimes. And I mean, without a doubt, I confirmed what Jason was saying. Like, yep, you know, you've got to treat this as a serial. Sure, if the information one day proves otherwise, that's fine. But, you know, you're an idiot if you don't work, work on this as a serial. And he was like, that was already his conclusion already. So we've got the three murders. We've got one near miss. Yeah. And um, you now involved in, and speaking with them and, and, suggest, and everyone kind of agreeing that this is a serial. Of course... The province wasn't convinced it was a serial case. How did that yeah. factor here and why is that relevant? So I then contact our coordinator in Durban at, or in, 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 for KZN for serial kind of crimes or psychological murder crimes, Colonel Boyson, and I say, we've got a problem. There's, a, there's, in my opinion, definitely a serial murderer who's very active because we've had it. You know, we don't, it's not, we're not talking about over six months. We're talking about a couple of days. Um, and... This needs to be dealt with as a serial. Is this um, a spree? Would you call this a spree? You know, a spree, you know, there's often debates about when is something a spree is a, is a, is a serial and, and can a spree, is, is, is there a need for the classification of spree? So spree kind of tends to be, you know, one event, like I always refer to that movie, perhaps showing my age, Natural Born Killers, where these people over a couple of days are just killing, 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 killing as they move from one area to another. Like it's a, almost like a killing journey. I would imagine our audience are familiar with natural yeah. born killers, I would hope. Well, if you haven't, go watch it because it was a really interesting movie back in the early 90s. Killer soundtrack. Yeah. Um, it was from a pop, pop culture point of view, you know, a lot of references. It's like if you watch Pulp Fiction, you, you know, you should All probably of a Stone have watched movie, Natural Born. It? Yeah, I think it was. You should be watching yeah. Natural Born Killers. It's that genre of type of movie. And, and what's the other one by um, Reservoir Dogs? That's kind of, you know. Yeah. Let's take a break, watch the movie. Get some popcorn, watch maybe carry on with the podcast. <laughs> so a spree in a way would be more like um, a guy I had in Dunsane Township in the Eastern Cape not long after I started the police who woke up one morning, basically believed his girlfriend had cheated on him, started drinking, got a gun, went to her house, shot her, shot her dad when he came out. And then she just he just went to all the different places where this, his girlfriend had friends or mm. you know family and just like killed whoever and then started killing whoever he walked across and came across mm. in the township and after a couple of hours police cornered him and i think he killed himself so that's more of a spree it's like a mm. snap and it kind of goes and the police kind of typically end up either shooting you or you shooting yourself so yes it's a short time frame but these are separate individual incidences so i'm more likely to say this guy was a very fast acting serial and you want people then to obviously get very quickly onto this type of case absolutely but the province said no you know their information is that this isn't a series and nobody be decapitated and i don't know where they got information because jason said look i've been in possession of these four dockets since they were opened 
you know, so nobody else at Providence could have looked at these and could really, with, with adequate information, come to a different opinion. So I drafted my letter and I met with Boyson later that day, Anton, and he kind of looked at the documents like, okay, yeah, no, this is definitely. So, um, yeah, but luckily it didn't really change things because, as I said, McGray did have the ability to put together a team and work on it because it was his basically cluster area. Um, and that was, that was great. He was acting, yeah, the acting cluster coordinator for the detectives and head of Brighton Beach detectives. So, it didn't in this case, but in another case, it, it could have delayed the start of a task team. And in this case, with the guy who's operating so quickly, he just would have had more deaths very quickly. Um, but he did also have the support of the Brighton Beach Station Commissioner, you know, Colonel Krobler, and the cluster head, uh, Brigadier Mpete. So that, you know, was, was definitely helpful. And it seems that word getting out did, kind of in the bigger picture, kind of help as well, because it helped other cases to kind of come to the fore yeah. because people were aware that this was going on and if it had happened to them and they were maybe reticent to come forward, something had happened to them, they were maybe reticent to come forward, they now came forward. But there was also negative aspects to the media coverage because at this stage they were maybe disclosing a bit too yeah. much information. Am you know, I right? And that's always the negative side. You know, so, you know, the media find people and blurt out their story in the newspaper before there's even a docket opened up. Mm. And, you know, like I said, one day you arrest someone and then he confesses. And when he eventually goes to court and he's changed his mind, he says, yeah, but I, 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 I'm, I don't know why I wanted the attention. That's why I confessed. And, and I only confessed to what I read in the newspapers. Yeah. And now if that stuff was all blurted out in the newspapers, yeah. it, it, you know, remember, they just need to prove reasonable doubt. Or, it's tough, I guess, when he's doing it on the side of the road in a relative, you know, this is not hmm. super concealed and it's not you know, killing someone in the middle of the shopping mall. Mm. This is somewhere in the middle, isn't it? It's um, it's in the view of yeah. of 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 public. So of I mean, the incident is going to be you know, reported. I don't have a problem with that. But when you're when you're saying interviewing the potential witness or the the guy who survived, and you're saying it was a guy driving a Peugeot, and he looked like this, and he said this to me, and he said yeah, that yeah, to me, yeah. and about the kid, and that he was killed, that you know, I gave Ace to his daughter. And the guy confesses that in, if that information is not public knowledge, you know from the st- statement that information is there. And if a guy then confesses, you know it's the guy because he yeah. couldn't have heard that from any other source. Yeah. How do you engage with journalists to say, guys, we'll give you information, but, you know, there's certain things. If we ask you to keep, you know, do you have a dialogue about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate to use ever at any stage with anyone? It's difficult. You always obviously have to balance up, you know, freedom of the press versus what could potentially delay an investigation. And in a serial case, delaying a case, delaying the investigation means more people die. Yeah. Or in a, in a rape series, in any, any series where it's, it's a rape series. It's a clash series, of what's series. in the public interest, isn't it? Um, and, you know, journalists always want to be the one to break interesting news and stories. That's how they get success and attention and promotion and, you know, et cetera. So, um, but you can be a good, you can tell the story and be the journalist without being a clever dick and revealing yeah. too much of the detail, I guess. And there have been, you know, ones over the years who really, you know, I really respect Barry Bateman, who does a lot of crime reporting here, at least in Gauteng is, is one I really respect. Ben said, who sadly passed away. We should get Barry years Bateman ago. to come and chat with us. You know, Graham Hoskins, you know, guys that, and, and there's other, other, a lot of lady invest, uh, journalists who you can really trust and respect, et cetera, and they know their boundaries, but they're fantastic journalists at the same time. Yeah. So I always have a rule that, you know, you don't tell a journalist anything that you don't want them to mention because this nonsense of don't tell anybody, but, or tell me off the record. Then they just send unnamed source. So, mm. you know, you don't say anything that you're not prepared to have put into the media. They yeah. might just say it's from an anonymous source, um, but still it's inf- information you don't want made public. Don't tell it to a journalist. I mean, hello. Um, so you kind of have to weigh up, you know, 
managing the media because they're not going to disappear. They will, and I think it's right that they do report there was a murder that took place, mm. you know, and it's 24-year-old, 34-year-old so-and-so. That's fine. I mean, I don't have a problem with that. But stuff that could jeopardize a confession later on. Well, I think as a journalist, you, there's also a component of having an ethical obligation to do what's in the public interest, to understand, you know, to, to understand what's in the, to at least understand what's in the public interest mm. and make decisions that are not too overtly not in the public interest. So sometimes you have to educate them because a serial case, what you put out there might be different, to, could be sensitive for different reasons compared to a once-off murder case. You know, once-off case where a guy is attacked in their home, it's clearly a robbery murder, you know, they're perhaps blasting a lot of information, could bring people to come forward with the info. But in a serial case, that same amount of info is difficult because remember, this is an ongoing guy. You know he's going to kill again. Mm. Whatever you blast out there, he's going to read mm. and could cause him to change his modus operandi, mm. making us not realize it's him, or cause him to relocate to a different area. And then we have to take two or three bodies before we realize he's, he's active there. So that's the difference. I always say it's like a, if you're investigating a syndicate, you don't blast your whole investigation into the media because the syndicate that's continuing to operate knows you're onto them and knows what you know and destroy evidence, change modus operandi, etc. So that's the difference between a once-off murder and a series in terms of media-wise what you want to mention. Having been in the area at the time that these crimes were taking place, um, I gathered that you would have stuck around for a couple of days at this stage. Um, what was the sentiment in the community? What was the feeling like in the community? Were people terrified and locking themselves in their houses? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I only really can judge it by how, what was being in the media, online media and sort of print media. Um, yes, a lot of fear, just media headlines, serial killer. But what's interesting is that there was a lot of sympathy because, of course, what's in the media, this guy was going, attacked the person who raped his daughter and gave her aid. So if you look at the online comments, people were like, yeah, well, I'd also do that if I caught the guy who raped my daughter. So in a way, this vigilante suspect, as he was being seen, was almost being seen as a hero by many people and sympathy at least. Um, so this what, is a real example of where kind of poor reporting can. Now, whether can that's what or can he was the, can trying, the, maybe is that is that the reason why he told this nonsense story? You know, you gave my daughter AIDS and uh, because he knew that that's going to perhaps give him some positive attention in the media. I don't know, but that's the effect. He was in some ways being seen as a, a guy getting revenge for what happened to his daughter. And like I said, a lot of people were like, yeah, that's, you know, we're, you know, good on you. You know, that was a kind of feedback we were almost getting. What is the next case that comes on to? So the next radar? one actually, again, was the media reported on this and the guy hadn't yet opened up the case. So mm. he's talking to the media, not to the cops. And this actually fitted in on the 21st of March, which would have been before the, between the first and the second murder in the order of things. And like I said, the cops read about this in the newspaper and track the guy down. And this guy had been walking again late at night. Um, 20, uh, 9.40 in the evening in Umlazi, on his way home after, you know, after a visit to his father. And again, a silver vehicle stops next, you know, drives around past him, stops. He carries on walking and he senses the guy's sort of walking after him. And then a guy grabs him by the shirt collar. He runs off. The guy then takes an axe out of a red plastic bag, throws it at him, which hits him on the back. Um, again, he runs home and, you know, he, he survives and, Again, tall, big, well-built guy, a silver car, late in the evening, speaking Zulu. 
again fitting in with uh, so now we're filling in the pictures of the whole you know we have these murders and in between it these are attempts that are trying to take place so this guy's even more active than initially we thought trying to actually kill people it would have been almost one a day if he was successful um, in these sort of short Absolutely. period of days at this stage um, the public interest um, brings another case to the to the police's attention again yeah so again because of all this media attention and everybody knowing there were these incidents and kind of at least the basic kind of circumstances uh, a victim's sister contacts warrant officer Naidu and says listen man this is now about the 20th of March she contacts him she says you know last year um, my brother was attacked in November 2010 um, also late at night uh, walking along the road in, in Yellowwood Park and someone stops next to him in a silver gray vehicle um, asking if he knows a girl by the name of Zama then gets out and starts to beat him with the baton. Luckily, this time not an axe. And he kind of passes out and he wakes up and the guy's on top of him, still beating him. And a neighbor whose wit sort of hears this kind of screams, turns the house lights on and the suspect thankfully stops and flees. I mean, if that had been an axe, we would have definitely had a dead person right there. And luckily, this person who was attacked actually was still able to get the registration number down. And he had opened up a, a case at the time. And... You know, after he was discharged from the hospital two days later. Also describes it, again, well-built, black male, like a wrestler or a rugby player was actually his words. And definitely would be able to recognize him. So essentially, this was the first of the attacks upon males in the sort of series of events that we've been discussing at this point in time. Um, but he said, but look, I've even seen this guy previously in this area of Yellowwood Park. And then after the incident, he says, but I now also saw him again in the same vehicle, driving, you know, driving around and parking at the local spa um, a grocery store but the police hadn't really done much about it hmm. and if they so, had yeah would where would he be would he should he you know is this the, is this the kind of case that warranted him kind of entering into the, the system at some level whether should have been be, arrested for attempted murder you know imprisoned or, or yeah. put into a you know assessed and put into a mental health facility well arrested for attempted murder yeah. if then an issue of his mental health status was raised he should have been kept in custody yeah. uh, until he um was able to get in a, a med- but this a wasn't a case that was pending further investigation it wasn't still active this was something that had been completely put to bed and he was just left to carry on knocking yep. people over the head with clubs possibly and later the, the 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 judge was very very critical of some of these earlier events where the cops actually could have stopped this yeah. from progressing but didn't again i think one of those kind of common um aspects of a lot of the cases we discuss where at a low level the cops, I don't know what you, what cops the, those would be, what you'd call the, you know, the basic station detective. The yeah. basic station detective level, often we find that things slip through the cracks that are later picked up on when an experienced, capable, competent yeah. person or persons take over the investigation or come into yeah. the investigation via an, another, another when crime. things got worse. Yeah. And as we see here, they immediately then went and got this guy, because they had the case number from this from the sister who contacted them, immediately got his docket, and there's a registration number from that, they get an address, and literally it was that night, pretty much, that they went and arrested him. Okay, so, in a, you know, we've spoken about some of the negative components of the press coverage, and, you know, just, you know, 
maybe the media disclosing more than you would have liked at the time. But it really did give these people the opportunity, kind of opened the door for them to come forward. And there you go. Yep. In a very short time frame, you've got a really solid lead. Yep. How do the police pursue the lead? So basically, they, as I said, they got the the ownership and, and uh, address of the owner of the vehicle, who was a Mrs. Mrs. Letlaka, who lived in Yellowwood Park, which again is like slap bang in the middle of where these incidences so far have been taking place. Uh, they kind of the police approach the neighbors who say, "Yeah, there's a big, well built young man who stays there who could be a rugby player." Um, they kind of then hold the house under observation during the day, um, checking who's coming and going. And then get themselves ready. And that night, um, they approach in the early hours of the evening. Approach the house. Um, you know, the majority of the cops went to the front, and Marius and and um, another cop went around the back, and they basically hit the house. And out the back door suddenly pops our suspect. Uh, and Marius A said it was a man. It was very very tense because this guy he says was huge. They couldn't even put normal handcuffs. Yeah, on I was going to ask you to tell that piece. Yeah, um, they ended up using leg irons because his forearms were so big. But luckily, he didn't sort of you know decide to fight it out. Um, I understand how he feels. Was taken into custody. So and they said you know, the identikit that had been drawn by some of the earlier witnesses, it was exactly the same. So, of course, then the next step is to um, pretty much secure the area, get your crime scene people in, and, you know, and when you're ready to start interviewing this. Where are you at this stage? So, I'm back in Pretoria. Obviously, I'd, I'd gone back because I'd been down for another matter and, okay. you know, I'd, I'd gone uh, gone back so up. So, this wasn't, you didn't manage to convince everyone this was an excuse for you to have a bit of a, a extended a stay. beach holiday. <laughs> and, I mean, it was in good hands. I mean... Jason and his team knew what to do. They understood serial investigations. He was yes. competent. So, you know, we're always a phone call away. Yeah, um, and how how much of a dialogue would you have been having at this stage with them? How much of a, you know, would they have been thinking, just on a day-to-day basis? How, yeah, daily. How would you would you be engaging with them? Yeah, daily? engaging daily, up, with updates as to what's happening, uh, et cetera. But like I said, you know, I was quite comfortable that it was in good hands. I mean, I can't recall if I don't have my diary with me. I mean, I might have had other court matters that would have caused me to, you know, go back to Pretoria or other commitments. Um, uh, I mean, I, as I said, I didn't check check my diary around that time. Um, so the vehicle um, that they were looking for was not on the premises. So yes. there'd been two silver little silver yeah, vehicles. Yeah, let's talk about the cars. Tell one, us about the one cars. was owned by his, this, our suspect's mom, Mrs. Litlaka, and that had been in an accident. Then they'd got a, a rental car from the uh, insurers that had also been in a bit of a ding that had been actually hadn't been returned on time. So a cop had actually come a few days before and recovered it on behalf of the um, um, insurance uh, of the of Avis, I think it was. And um, because there had been some damage to it, um, it had been kept aside, fortunately, by Avis, so they could do their own little investigation as Real. to the damage and, and you know, from an insurance point of view. Which and we he, don't have to tell everyone is good from a for yeah the, for a, you know just potential for forensics to be yeah. preserved because actually they'd noticed blood when they came to recover it and he said oh I was that little minor accident I had which led to this damage you see the passenger got injured you know bumped their nose bled etc so he'd come up with a bullshit excuse for the damage and the blood that was present in the car but while they're still on the scene I mean that's jumping a bit ahead marius smells a very very foul rotten meat smell coming from a dog kennel now they hadn't had a dog there since the previous year and looks inside and he finds blood-stained clothing an axe don't tell me um some rotting meat um some you know cap some nike shoes one with a missing toe cap a black bag blue jeans white socks a green and orange 
plastic bags, which is what some of the earlier victims had described them seeing the guy putting stuff into black and sort of green plastic bags. I mean, correct bags. me if I'm wrong, but we've got... Do we have any heads that are unaccounted for at this stage? No unaccounted no, heads no. and, you know... Okay, so we're not thinking there's a in the head dog in kennel. We're yeah. not thinking there's a rotting head in the dog kennel yeah. here. Okay. So they seize all of that. And it wasn't. Um, and the Nike shoes that had the missing toe cap um, actually wasn't a, a model that was quite widely sold in South Africa, firstly. Okay. And that missing toe cap was going to come quite important later yes. on. Um, so again, they, they kind of seal up his room. They want to make sure they get the proper crime scene people and experts out to, to process it. And about a couple of days later, um, the National Crime Scene Management Unit came down from Pretoria. And those were really sort of, at the time, top-notch um, mm. people who would get involved in very complex cases and who could spend days you know, working on a, on a scene. They've got the best tents and white, white, white outfits, suits. Absolutely, smurf suits. Yeah. So Colonel Zitz Albert, who sadly has left the, the cops a year or two after this, um, just before I left, actually, um, does sort of blue star spraying to, to detect um, any sort of invisible blood that had been cleaned up. And he does get a reaction in a few places in the bathroom and in the suspect's bedroom. Now, where he stayed was like a little flatlet at the back of the house, although it was part of the greater house itself, the structure. Um, and they get sort of these reactions coming out. And actually, later DNA analysis actually identifies it as one unknown female DNA profile that didn't match any of our current or future suspects, victims, as you'll see now, we're going to raise another victim, and an unknown male DNA that didn't match any of our suspects, uh, any of okay. our victims. So those, we're not quite sure were there more victims that we, haven't, we don't know about that didn't come forward mm. or for whatever reasons. Do you, do you know, or any of the, the, the psychologists now go to speak with him, or is it the cops that are speaking with him? So we didn't want to interview him too soon. We wanted to okay. make sure we kind of, understood the extent of what we were going into. So it was a couple of days later um, that I went down to formally do, uh, I think with three or four days after the arrest, um, myself and Colonel DeLong went down to Durban to do a proper interview with, uh, with McGray. And Give us an overview of his, psycho of his psychological issues. So, you know, and once you've identified story. him, you know, we, we kind of find out that, um, you know, he'd, he done quite, you know, he came from a normal family. His mom, I think, later became an, a, a lawyer. Dad had been at some point uh, appointed at foreign affairs, was a South African diplomat. He himself had studied at a high school in Settlers in Limpopo, which is a very well-known agricultural school. Then went to Chwane University of Technology, played rugby for the SA Barbarians, was the first black player contracted to the, the Blue Bulls rugby union team. He represented South Africa in the under-21 rugby team. So, you know... Quite a nice career in terms of mm. his rugby future if he continued at it. So somebody that um, folks would have been watching at home on Supersport. Yeah. Simple you as know, that. And he had a five-year-old son. He just he did not have a daughter. Um, and he hadn't seen the son for quite a long time. He wasn't involved in the son's life. Okay. So it does turn out that sort of in December of 2009, for the first time, he'd been diagnosed with mental health problems. So schizoaffective disorder, which is kind of a mixture of schizophrenia and having a mood disorder, in this case bipolar. Um, and I mean, he'd, you know, in multiple problems since this was first identified in and out of hospital, ran away when he's been transported from one hospital to another, fled down to Cape Town, was then admitted at Falkenberg Hospital for a month or so, uh, then came back to Durban, was admitted again, and was basically being treated as an outpatient pretty much. But bottom line is, he's got a very current, available mental health record. Absolutely. And these are. He's got issues that could lead to 
antisocial behaviors like he has displayed. And what I want to ask you is, you know, if he's if he's paranoid, then, you know, this story about the, about the daughter being, you know, is it possible that he's devised, he's got certain, you know, conspiracy theories running around in his head that that are driving him to act is it you know and he's kind of acting upon those delusions or illusions is it yeah. is that possibly what the the daughter's story is the well, hiv story that's possible um and obviously that was something that was then later explored and became a whole chapter of his trial or two chapters in his trial about whether these actions are the the result of his mental health problems or are the mm. two separate from each other. It's almost like we could do a whole show on just the trial, really. Absolutely. But I think we can cover some of the key components yeah. just now. So, um, but one of the things, though, is, is the paranoid sort of delusion around his mother and his sister po- poisoning his food, for example. Nothing else sort of beyond that. And that was the consistent sort of theme that came out in his um, interaction with psychiatrists. So should he have been... In the system somewhere, or was he okay to be out on the streets? I mean, well, you know, the doctors at the time who were seeing him as an outpatient, obviously not knowing other stuff he's up to, um, felt that he was relatively stable. Um, you know, your paranoid delusions don't easily go away, so you couldn't keep someone admitted for for extended periods of time as trying to treat that unless you felt he's going to go and harm someone right now. Um, it also points to the fact that the police in that initial case where with the beating where he'd survived in the first case um i mean this really underlines the fact that the police did absolutely made no attempt to find out anything about this guy because i'm sure that if he's got this kind of a track record of mental health a little bit of scratch in the surface and you're going to see that this guy you're dealing with has deeper issues and maybe we need to take him a bit more seriously so, so i think what happened is that when they did trace um back to this guy and they got to his mother the mother said well he's got very severe mental health problems uh he's recently admitted and i think it's often the cops don't quite know what to do with that and decided oh well you know we less well let the prosecutor decide what to do but we're not going to go and you know take this guy into custody because he's mentally ill and that's quite not you know, it's, it's not a up, very strange get out of jail free card it's isn't not it? up to you as the detective to decide he a he's mentally ill, and b the no. mental illness had something. He's to do fine. With his he's crime. with his mom, and his mom knows what's going on you in know, his life, and he's got doctors. Arrest him, and then let that those arguments be presented to the prosecutor, who then can refer, request that he be referred for for observation. Yeah, but I but guess it, this is when kind of the subjective nature of policing starts to play a role, where you're not just. Sometimes as a cop, you just need to be the robot and play play by the rules and go by the book yeah. and not kind of. Uh, make these judgment calls along the way absolutely all right so then um additional cases begin to reveal themselves this basically there's two so the first one that kind of pops up about three days after his arrest on about the first of april uh, a guy is walking his dog in the sort of yellowwood park area which is again near to where one of these crimes occurred and where he was our suspect was staying his dog kind of pulls him off the road into the sort of bushes and he comes across a very decomposed body of a an adult black male whose pants were sort of by his ankles, uh, head has been smashed to pieces. Um, but at the scene, they find um, a toe cap of a, of a shoe, which obviously the, Jason and his team go out and they re- remember, but hang on, there was a Nike pair of shoes at the scene that was missing a toe cap that looks suspiciously like this. So that, and it also was 500 meters down the road from where our suspect stayed. So they knew this has got to be obviously our another case by our suspect. A very good example of 
the same cop that's investigating everything, looking after the evidence, banking it in his head, later on being able to draw those obvious and immediate connections. Yep. So why having different detectives working on different cases One taking it across over, different yeah. regions, again, just underlining the fact that this is, this is how it's supposed to happen. Yeah. And sadly, this person was never identified, but he, he later became, this was added to Nchungwana's uh, okay. set of charges. But then the next one, which comes out, um, so we're not exactly sure when that incident occurred, but it obviously was pre-arrest because of the state of decomposition, but was this the first victim in the, in the greater scheme of things? Um, it is possible um, because it was fairly decomposed, and this was the 1st of April, and remember our first murder that we know of was, was I think it was the 20th of March. So it's very possible that that um, you know, could have been one of the first, if not the first. But what comes out though, which is a bit different, was that they're appearing in court with our suspect after his uh, arrest and a prosecutor comes up to McGray and says, you know what, we've got a case against this guy. He's like, what do you mean? And the prosecutor says, well, the previous year, 28th of November, um, so even more reason he should have been locked up. Yeah. Okay, let's get into it. Um, this, <laughs> Again, I'm so glad that we're the show that builds confidence in the South African police. That's what we do here yeah. on Profiler. So um, basically, essentially what had happened is in the previous year, 20th of November, a young lady was visiting Durban from Ngoma and our suspect stops next to her in a silver car and says, hey, uh, blah, 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 chit, 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 I'll give you a lift. And she's like, okay. And he proceeds then to rather take her to his house where he was arrested and into his back room. And he basically keeps her there for three days. And during that time period, rapes her repeatedly. And more, no doubt. And more. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, this that's a, a torturous experience yeah. for anyone, is you know, it he's not? Ranting I mean, this and is raping, rape, but this is a huge amount of yeah. psychological yeah, torture so. going on here. Because for three days, you're a victim suspecting that you're with somebody that's threatening yeah. to kill you and may well do so. Yeah, and he's the, telling her that he had killed other people before, um, et cetera, et cetera. And as a raping repeatedly without a condom. And so why is he not in jail for this? Why is he not incarcerated or why is he not? So again, so let's, so, so basically what happens is on the third day, um, you know, again, he mentions the issue about infecting his child with AIDS. Um, he then basically says to her, you have to come and stay with me now. I'm kind of giving a summarized version. And she convinces him to let her go home, back to the, her sister's place where she was visiting to grab her clothes and then she'll come back with him and you know, be his girlfriend. Um, but in this time period, at one point, he'd ordered food from Debonair's Pizza. And at one point, he'd left the room, locked her in, kept her locked in, went outside the room and she found his ID book and the delivery slip from the pizza that he had ordered um, while they were there, and she kept these on her. So when she eventually he convinced him to take her to go get her clothes, and she manages to basically flee and then go straight to the police, she hands over to the police ID book and address. Which just shows great presence of mind Absolutely. in the midst of a horrifying ordeal. And she says to her friend who she bumps into as she's kind of going into a block of flats, she says, that's see that car behind me? Don't let the guy in firstly, tell the security not to let him in, but also can you get down the registration number? So I mean, we've got registration number of the vehicle, ID book, and an address. It's like on a platter. But again, the cops went there and the mother said he's got mental health problems, he's not here right now, and it was kind of left at that. It's interesting how people's survival instincts kick in in these types of, you know, with these type, when, when you come into contact with these types of people. Um, and how... Possibly with 
with every killer, there's a level of presence of mind and being able to manage a situation or handle a situation that, you know, maybe every killer's got that, got mm. that, there's that escape route yeah. that you can take or you can find as a potential victim. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's just an interesting mm. thing. And at one point she did try to escape and he grabbed her and, and beat the crap out of her. When he captured her, um, she had no idea who he was. She's mm. never met this guy, but he's speaking to her like he's her boyfriend. He's speaking to her like he's familiar with her. Mm. He's 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 being violent towards her because he's accusing her of cheating with that or mm. to, of of yeah. of sleeping with other guys. But also, when she gets into the car, he says to her, "Have you ever slept with a cosa boy?" And she said, "No." And he said, "Well, this is the day you're going to find out." So it's just which sort of contradicts him saying, yeah. "You know." You're my girlfriend. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. This is the point. It's all jumbled, isn't yeah. it? It's like uh, he's he's got he's delusional. Is it it's his fantasies, delusions? What what are they? Or was he just trying to mislead everybody? Yeah. Okay. Know. Or was it calculated? Yeah. Because also, but, when he went back to his psychiatrist, in the order of things prior to his arrest, now, but after that rape incident had happened, and the police had gone to the mom's house and said, "Oh no, this is you know a case has been opened." He said to the psychiatrist, no, I don't remember that incident at all. And then he later says, actually, no, this was all a misunderstanding. You know, it was his girlfriend. This is now his mom also saying this. No, his girlfriend just had a misunderstanding and he just locked her in the room because he was afraid of somebody coming to steal his stuff. But he also denied that it happened. Um, We also have him with the car, giving a false excuse to the people who come and collect the rental car. Oh, this was a car accident and that's the pile that was a passenger's blood. Mm -hmm. So he's also having a presence of mind to cover these things up. You know, he's hiding the stuff in the dog kennel. Um, so you see also elements, and this is later what the court commented on, of a guy who knew what he was doing was wrong and was trying to cover it up. Yes. Um, so that's, I think, really Which counted is, against him. Yeah, and that, that seems to become a critical component of whether or not you're competent. Was there a, co- a particular conflict around his competency for trial? It sounds like there would have been. Yeah, so, so definitely um, they... Explore that even before the trial started, that a formal, you know, um, sort of process where evidence was given to determine his ability to stand trial and whether he could be held criminally responsible for his actions during the actual incident. And that was kind of sorted out and the trial proceeded. But then again, at the trial, the defense raised that again, saying, you know, my, our client didn't do it. He has no recollection. But if the evidence shows he did do it, it's because he has a delusional disorder. Not even the disorder that the other that his diagnosis had been made. A totally separate disorder. Mm. Um, and again, during the trial was raised. And again, we had to have witnesses um, challenging this issue. And this really probably delayed the trial, made the trial stretch out longer than a year, a year longer. Yeah. Um, just because of fighting this whole issue out. Well, I want to say, I mean, here we've got key evidence that's pretty compelling. We've got him being identified in ID parades at various stages. We've got DNA. We've Blood got linking him in the car to two of the victim, deceased victims. We've got an axe. We've got the toe cap. We've got similar fact evidence between these cases, like that you that you yeah. that you speak of. But like you say, the trial stretches out for a whole year. What? Why? Yeah. Tell us the story of the trial. So it was initially sent to start on nineteenth of November, twenty twelve. So in other words like a year and a half after he's arrested. And as I said, in the meantime, you've had the first sort of one week where we're arguing his mental status and could the trial proceed. Um, you know, we, we kind of get through a lot of the um, 
you know, st- the, 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 the civilian witnesses, if I can call it that, quite quickly. Mm-hmm. But then it gets sort of postponed till April 2013. Um, and then we continue with some of the, you know, Colonel Alberts comes, you know, we have Major Crane from the forensics who linked the toe cap to the Nike shoe. Uh, the forensic pathologists, etc. I mean, but all this can happen over a few weeks of trial. Why is this taking a year? It's, you know, it's, why it's, is it? Why is it stretching out over? It's a got year? often to do with you what know, are the key conflicts? That it'll are, typically be how long is it initially set down for? So you might set down for two weeks, but because of various delays, you don't get through everything as fast as you want to. Um, and then now you postpone. But now you've got to find dates that suit the defense advocate who's representing Nchongwana, the prosecutor, and the court. Mm. So you've got three different people's diaries that you're trying to satisfy. Tell us about the legal teams. Who are the advocates here? So advocate Ria Mina, um, yeah. she's now retired from the NPA, who's a very experienced prosecutor, small little lady. Um, I'm trying to think there was one of these cartoon movies. Uh, the Incredibles. Was it Incredibles? The and lady, he had the yeah, spy the, boss lady. Yes, yes, who made, makes the um, makes their outfits. Yes. Makes their superhero suits. Hello. Yes, that, that lady. lady. Yeah, she kind of reminds me of her. And she smokes up a chimney, um, but incredibly competent and experienced. And she was representing both, both based the prosecutor. And then he had private defense uh, advocate in Jolly, who himself was kind of in the running as an to be an acting judge. And I don't think it ever happened because of some of his behavior in this particular case. Also well, I, I, in, in kind of going through this case, I found him to be an interesting personality. Quite, yeah, you know, um, not pitching up in court and not telling anybody, and then yeah. he's in court in Peter Marisburg with something else, and then just not pitching up at all. Then later coming back saying he was sick, and that's really kind of in terms of court behavior, etiquette, very unacceptable stuff. Yeah, you got to show the judge some respect, man. Yeah, you know, you don't not pitch up on a court date, you literally better be in hospital, um, or have yeah. had a family member die the day before, and and quite unscrupulous and unscrupulous. I know it's part of his job, but you know, with with the some of the witnesses yeah, and accusing the, the 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 forensic pathologist of lying uh the, you know because von der Loy Morris had taken an axe a, a similar axe not the axe on the at the time of the autopsy to say doc could this possibly be similar to the weapon used to kill these individuals and the doctor said yes that is very similar to what was used here and then he kind of accuses the doctor of lying no there were no axe was ever there you're lying and then that also implies that McGray and Fonaloy, who were present, were also lying. Um, and then kind of really having a go at the rape victim, accusing of lying mm. and making up stuff, etc., etc. And he um, made a thing about the car that he was picked up in, the police car. When he was arrested, he made some kind of he made some kind of a, 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 a there was some kind of a conflict related. Yeah, because you know Marius had said it was um, he thought it was a Toyota Quantum that they put him in while they were busy <laughs> yeah. sorting out the house, and then he said no, it wasn't. It was a different car, and and trying to make him look like he was therefore like, like all of his someone getting false. confused about the car exactly is just yeah. gonna then. Null and void, all the DNA evidence and the. But you know, when you're getting paid and you've got a hopeless case, you really got to try every little bit you can. Hope yeah, you have to accentuate stick. your your yeah your opportunities, I guess, to, yeah. to to make a case. I hear you. Um, you know, then he's objecting that the prosecutor was always jumping up and protesting things, but I, she had very valid you know protestations. As I could sort of. It just seems to me that you know, in a like you know, obviously the the process. You know, you've got to go through the process and the legal system's the legal system. But it's, it just seems when you've got such compelling evidence that there should be a way that we can imagine to, to kind of get these things through the system a little bit quicker, you know? Yeah. Um, this person doesn't need a long, drawn-out trial. He needs to get to 
to a facility that's appropriate for him as quickly as possible, you know, yep. and there's not too much, there shouldn't have to be a year's worth of debate about that, surely. Mm. And, you know, so the trial proceeds and eventually the state's case is done. In other words, the, the prosecution's called all the witnesses that they, that they want to. Um, and then the, the defense obviously gets to call if they want to any counter witnesses. And basically they call two people, you know, Nchungwana's sister, and then Professor Gangat, who is a very senior specialist psychiatrist in private practice, and I think he was linked to, I think, you know, one of the universities in, in Durban. And basically, he was there to come and testify that he thinks that um, the mental health, the mental illness was the cause of all of this behavior. But interestingly enough, you know, multiple psychiatrists during the court observation, but also the ones who treated him before the crimes, said that he had that schizoaffective disorder with bipolar Bipolar mood disorder was the mood side of it. Would he have been on medication? Should have been for sure, absolutely. So Professor Ganga too, just I cannot help but point out, was also part of the team that said Shabir Sheikh was about to die and should be given medical parole. I've heard he's doing terribly. <laughs> on the yeah, golf course. deathly you know, sick. I mean, can you imagine so being so deathly sick for so long? It must be terrible. Um, so basically, he went three times to see Nchungwana. The first time Nchungwana refused to speak to him at the prison, and then he saw him two more times. And basically, like I said, had a bit of a different diagnosis to all the other psychiatrists. As I said, the three who assessed him at, for the forensic assessment and the other ones who had treated him over the previous years. And says it's delusional disorder with sort of paranoid personality traits. Okay. And that when he gets these delusions, I think his words are, when the delusions come thick and fast, the person loses control, can become hostile, aggressive, homicidal, and extremely violent. Um, etc., etc., loses touch with reality, etc. I don't know what he means by thick and fast, and I'm not being able to find a psychiatrist or psychologist who understands what the expression when delusions come thick and fast. Um, but essentially, <laughs> essentially, that the guy's not responsible for his behavior because of his mental illness. I um, like the little diss of some non psychology speak there, Gerard. You tell there him. You go. Um, one thing I haven't asked you is about just your impressions of him from meeting him. I mean, um, you mm. know, just, just kind of. Give us a little bit of insight into this guy from your personal perspective, from just his presence to his manner to then your feelings around his his mental mm. health issues. So look, I mean, when I went down to interview him not long after the arrest, I mean, he was, I mean, it's just, you cannot get around the fact this guy was absolutely huge. Like literally one of the biggest and sort of strongest guys I've ever come across. I mean, if he grabbed you by the neck, it's like, you know, don't struggle. It's going to be over soon because yeah. you're not going to, you know, fight your way out of that one. Okay. Um, you know, when we were doing the interview, I think Jason asked him like 70 something questions. And at times he would say, you know, I reserve my right to not answer that question. And he would answer other questions. Um, so not a stupid guy. Um, that's for sure. Um, but just like this big presence, you know, like you really thought, oh, I hope this guy doesn't decide to get violent in here because unless we got guns, you know, we're not going to probably come out of this one unscathed. Yeah, I think you you said that you um, sat with your, your back to the door, so or you sat closest to the door. Yeah, so you can so that run you can, fast. Yeah, exactly. So you can leave leave your mate behind to take the brunt of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, okay, any more kind of thoughts on, on him, just his... Yeah, I mean, as I said, before we started the formal interview, we were waiting for Jason, just kind of a generous chatting about rugby and oh, stuff yeah, like that. Okay. And you know, Yanni's more the rugby guy, so he kind of led that conversation. But um, So an amicable kind of guy that, I, I, you know, upon meeting him, even though he does have issues, you may not, you know, could quite easily not have any sense that is, there's anything wrong here. Have a nice yep. chat, you could have a beer and a chat about rugby and carry on with the rest of the day kind of thing. Do we really have any sense at all 
as to, I mean, I, I, I don't think he's, he's spoken about it. I certainly didn't come across anything where he's spoken about it. But why is he chopping off people's heads? No. I mean, as I said, he, at the trial, he says he has no recollection of any of these events. Okay. Which is contrary to what he told to, to one of the So is this made perhaps just his fantasy that he got right. off on it? Or, yeah. I mean, there was no sexual. The one victim's pants were down around his ankles. Mm. The decomposed one with, with a toe gap as well. You know, ever a thought and of then you anything had the lady sexual? Or, kidnapped I mean, and raped. But, you know, clothing being removed is often an indicator of sexual stuff, isn't it? Well, the guy it? was having a dump and Chongguan just caught him at the wrong time. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. And it's you're right, I hear you. It's... It, it's Difficult to kind of, um, to even... But the, I mean, the, the things you're raising is exactly why this was debated so yeah. lengthy and so many times during the trial and at yeah. length and various psychiatrists. I mean, as the state had three psychiatrists saying, yes, we don't dispute mental illness, but no, we don't think this has anything to do with the murders. Mm. He didn't commit these because of his mental illness. I also, I'm in the camp that agrees with that. But okay. you had, of course, Professor Gangat, whose, well, his evidence was quite disregarded. I don't know if I can read what the judge said. Um, as being, you know, no, that this isn't why we think he went out and killed these people. Um, not to dispute that he has these problems, but that's not what caused it. So this case really does kind of illuminate that kind of where, you know, how difficult it is to find the line between mm. being being able-bodied and, and being in complete control of your your, you know, your actions and what it is that you're doing and then being on the, the other side of the coin, mm. being kind of victim to your own mm. urges that are uncontrollable or your own craziness. But, I mean, it, you come back to the fact that how many serial murderers in South Africa had any diagnosable mental health issues? In Chongwana, in this case, um, was it Francois Potiter from Pochestrum in the 90, late 90s who killed some sex workers and was found unfit to stand trial because of schizophrenia? And even that, I have my questions. Um, so serial murder is not a mental health problem, it's a bad person problem. You know, they're all sitting in jail. There was no history of it mentioned. Um, it was anyway very often fully explored just because they were referred anyway. Um, so it's not as if serial murder is hmm. commonly associated with mental illness also. Yeah. We get confused when it's present in a guy who's done something quite horrible. Yeah, and yeah. then we automatically, our brain almost just wants to run into But it must be because of that. It yeah. must be. It's almost of a brain to separate the two you know, horrific crime and yeah. mental health. For a lot of people, it's, it's, it's almost you want it to be that because it makes sense. It's so difficult for us to rationalize the concept that somebody's needs and desires can be so diametrically opposed to what we consider to be normal and mm-hmm. acceptable and, and appropriate mm-hmm. in society. And that we want it to be easy by saying, oh, that's why. It's like okay. it's like imagining an infinite universe. It's kind of just one of those things that's hard to wrap your head around. The way I always think about it is like like you like you said to me once early on when we just met, um, that trying to compare a serial killer is like trying to compare a person to a chair. Mm. The, you just have to look at them as quite fundamentally different mm. a lot of the time from what we are. Mm. Um and yet they're still human beings, which means they could have diabetes, they could have high blood pressure, they could have mental health issues. Yeah. You know, it you're not be. you're not because you you're serial murder automatically you have to be free of any other issues in your life, mental health or otherwise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a person just wired differently with mm. different urges, but yes, you 
You can be an alcoholic, you yeah. a drug abuser. This is the kind of essence of the fascination with true crime and serial crime in particular, isn't it? It's that it's it's almost just the absolutely kind of really unsolvable mystery of what it is that that drives these kinds of people. Interestingly, interestingly for me in this case, and maybe not interestingly for anyone else, is that one of my best friends actually had an experience with Nchongwana where um, she had been out for the night with friends. And I can't recall if they'd met that night or if she actually knew him from around, you know. In Durban. In Durban, yeah, yeah, in the in the area. Um, she's a Durbanite. And um, she'd actually had Nchongwana in her house. Um, and then a friend of hers was her friend was drunk and Chongwana had offered to take her home. Um, and my friend had had a, you know, it kind of sussed the guy mm. and had an issue with him the whole night. So she made it very, and she's quite, she's quite a, an alpha personality. So she'd made it quite clear to him that, listen, if you're going to take my friend home, I know who you are. I know where you live. I've got your numbers. Okay. I've got her number. You're going to take her home. I'm going to be monitoring you and I will be calling her to make sure she gets home safe. And the friend did get home safe and seemingly they dodged a bullet. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's a small world. What are your final reflections on this case? What were, first of all, what were, what was his sentence and what are your kind of yeah. lasting reflections on this case? Wrap it up for so us. So basically, I mean, remember the trial started November 2012. The judgment took place in September 2014. So almost a two year stretch. Um, because I think primarily because of the expert witnesses that and around the mental health issue, they just dragged it out for even longer. Um, despite, you know, the initial, most of the initial witnesses were done and the state's case was done relatively quickly. Um, so we come to judgment, it's given pretty much over a three-day period because there's a lot the judge needs to cover. Um, you know, the judge, as I said, was very, very cr- critical of Professor Gangat, the defense psychiatrist's evidence. I mean, he actually, I'm quoting from the judgment that I'm sure people can get online. Um, we gained the distinct impression, we because he had an assessor sitting with him, that Professor Gungat was tailoring his evidence to accord with the undisputed facts of the case. Um, he could not explain how, if the accused was in a psychotic state and would have acted irrationally, he could then have been able to drive to various places, seek out victims, and um, for the foregoing reasons mentioned the day, mentioned yesterday, uh, we are the view that Professor Gungat was not an, an only an unimpressive witness but that his evidence was unreliable and of very little, if any, cogent value. And that's Look quite Gerard a... Gerard Disson, the psychologist, yeah, man. Psychiatrist. I love it. Psychiatrist. Psychiatrist. Um, very sort of... I mean, when a judge says you're unimpressive, that's one thing, but also when he says you're unreliable and, you know, your evidence had little value. The word unreliable as a witness... If they call you an unreliable witness, it's kind of almost like yeah. the end of your career as an expert witness. Okay, and yeah. when they say that you're tailoring your evidence, it means you're essentially not being ethical. So that's quite a, you know harsh indictment by the court and it'll be interesting to see if you ever testify to get in court and somebody rips up this judgment because your credibility commentary by the judge yeah sits with you forever yeah so there you know a smart person in the next court case when gangat appears would say but hang on in this judgment didn't the judge say that you're tailoring your evidence you're unimpressive and but more important your your evidence is unreliable it basically mm. means you've lied then once your credibility as a witness has been tarnished by another case that can be raised in any other future case against you. It doesn't just stay with that particular case. And you can't say, oh, that was just that case. Yeah. Because specifically you are there as an expert who's supposed to be above question and there to help the court and objective. 
that is damning kind of commentary. Yeah. But essentially, um, he's found guilty of all, I think it was total nine charges of, you know, murders, attempted murders, rapes, etc., kidnappings, you name it. Um, and then, of course, move into sentencing, which started in December. In other words, like about a month and a half later. Um, you know, they called a psychologist, clinical psychologist to testify. Also, I think was a bit out of a depth and started to raise again the issues of his criminal responsibility, which the court said, but that's been dealt with in canvas thoroughly. You're raising issues now that are not relevant to what we're dealing with. So judges get in the mood by which, this stage. Again, it's a mixture of the her lawyer who briefed her, should, the advocate who briefed her should have told her to take that out because sure. we've dealt with that. Oh, I see. Um, and she should also have known that that's not an issue that's at this point in time open for debate. Okay. But yeah, but long story short, Judge Khalil said, who was the, the judge in the case, said, you know, five terms of life imprisonment for the four murders and the multiple rapes of that particular victim, and then you know, 14 years for the various other little crimes, so to speak. And that was that. Uh, I think he did try to appeal, and I think it was dismissed. So this is basically, he got no more uh, options. And fortunately, Nchongwan is going to be locked away for a good fair time before he gets any opportunity to discuss the possibility of being let out. I would imagine that he'll... Yeah. There'll be other appeals and what have you, but um, ultimately, he's it's fairly early on in his sentence still. Um, he did sorry in the in the final closing words, the judge did comment on the police's earliest earlier behavior, um, and he was very complimentary towards McGray and the team that took over and, and basically you know got the guy arrested and okay, we prepared we, the case. We've outlined where the psychiatrist was falling yes, short. Let's this, do the same for the police. So. You know, and he says here, and I'm quoting directly from what the judge said. I pause to mention that the perpetrator's details, including a copy of his ID book in counts one, two, and three, that's the kidnap and rape, were known to the police as early as the beginning of December 2010, long before the formation of the task team. Uh, it's not clear or entirely clear from the evidence why the accused was not earlier prosecuted for the serious and violent offenses in counts one, two, and three, committed four months before the murders and the attempted murders in counts four to nine. Um, if it is indeed the same perpetrator responsible for his crime. This is a serious indictment in the police and prosecution services to our mind, as the earlier prosecution of the perpetrator might have prevented the commission of the four murders and two attempted murders in counts four to nine. So again, you know, I always say give praise where it's due, but give criticism where it's, not, where it's due, um, because hopefully that would lead to some change. If one keeps quiet about these criticisms and the judge hadn't commented, definitely nothing would have changed. So I do think these types of public criticism of the police by the media by the judges in questions and cases is necessary if we want to try and get the police back on track. If we cover up the police's mistakes and we don't comment on it, we're not, it's like covering up for a child, you know, you're never holding the child accountable. You know, the child will eventually just become a horrible child and horrible adult. Mm. So I'm, I'm quite happy to mention those because at the same time, this case also reflects some brilliant work done by people like McGray and his team. Well, I think it's an appropriate place to kind of wrap up the episode is with the kind of classic, again, with the classic South African scenario of if you get the good cop, you get the good result. Yeah. But all too often, there are some less than competent or less than careful cops along the way that either hinder the process or, you know, you know there, there is a, there, surely, you know, do you imagine in the, there's some world where there's accountability for those, for those types of, yeah. for that type of neglect being built into the police system? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
there's so much to think about when it comes to local policing and the state of the police, isn't there? And how they, things like this exist, you know, there are the, the positives and there are the, the good cops and the mm. good judges who do what needs to be done. And yeah. there is a degree of accountability and a degree of pointing out what needs to be fixed. And I mean, it, it is nice to also see but where's the action that, you know, von der Loy and, and Naidi were pro- both promoted to the rank of captain. I, I can't say it's because of this case, but, you know, their yeah. careers. And Becky was the police commissioner. Yes, at the time. At the time. And he apparently um, complimented yep. the detective directly as well. That's nice. So Marius and Enrico got promoted to captain and Jason was promoted to the rank of full colonel because he was a lieutenant colonel at the time. And Enrico Naidi was also awarded best detective uh, of that year in the SAPS award. So... You know, because we've had often, if we've spoken on these cases, some of these guys who 20 years later have never been promoted. I know? didn't know there was and a SAPS Awards. Yeah, Excellence Awards. We had Sun City once a year? They have it at uh, different places. Already, so, yeah, but nice. Nice, nice, nice. I think it's done properly. I don't know if they're still Musicians, uh, celebrity, you know, celebrity hosts. Fancy dress up. I don't know about celebrity hosts. But, but now Mateba hosting. Yeah. So it's nice that they do every now and then. I don't know if they still continued. I think... General Baslani might have started it in his time when he was the actor. Did you ever get a, an award at this? Never got no awards. award. Actually, yeah. you know, sometimes for a no. successful case, you can apply for like a, a monetary reward or a certificate of, of commendation. Oh. Um, I never got any of these national awards. I'm fine with that. Um, Are you sure? And once or twice, these sort of when you yourselves put up motivation and send it off to the head office, and you get like I said, a certificate saying really great work. Um, and sometimes hey, you don't have you to go like on about it, Jared. I mean, bonus or something. Don't have to go on about it. I understand. Well, we've hit a nerve here. Um, all right, Jared. Well, another great case. Um, this is going to be our longest episode because there was quite a lot to talk about in this, mm. in this, uh, in, in, in this case. And I think, you know, we've been sticking to the hour, but I think if we go over, I don't think it's an issue. I, you know, um, I think some of these cases merit a little bit more discussion and, um, you know, I think granted that it's it's it, it, it's you telling the story, then I think our audience is really compelled, and, and you know they find this the show really compelling and interesting. I hope so. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, definitely, I would say you know, as I said, this this was also a chapter in, in my first book, Profiler Diaries. Um, so there's a lot more little nuances and details um, in the chapter. So it's definitely we're still buying the book to read the chapter. And talking about the book, the winner of the book is. Rickety Rambo from Instagram. Rickety Rambo, congrats. You can send us your details. Info at gotyourblack.com. Info at gotyourblack.com. We'll also get in touch. So congratulations. There you go. So we've finally given away the book. Well done. And uh, we'll make, I'll make a plan to get it to you. We'll reach out and get in touch with you and we'll uh, make a plan to get it to you in fact why don't we give away another book let's give away another book we give away one book then we give away another book what do you say okay okay so we're going to give away another book and we'll tell you how we're going to do that next week in next week's episode next week we're discussing an interesting case just tell us what what case we're going to be discussing next week gerard just a little teaser so this was a case of a guy started out he was stalking, well, came to my attention after he stalked a psychiatrist that I had known. And from that investigation, which I ended up actually doing the investigation, which is quite unique uh, for me, um, ended up with up to 44 victims that he'd been stalking. We have got agents. the mother of all stalker cases to speak to you about next week. And one that came across Gerard's radar in, in, 
a su surprising and strange and unusual way. Okay, Gerard, well, thank you very much. We'll be back again next week with uh, uh, that episode. Um, like I say, just a great case to kind of talk about stalking and uh, the nature of stalking and how technology can both enable the stalker, can be their best friend, and their worst enemy, it turns out. Thank you very much for listening. You can get in touch with us on social media if you have any questions, if you have any suggestions for cases that we would we can cover. Um, you name it. Get in touch with us. We're on Facebook. We're on YouTube. Um, and, of course, the podcast is available uh, on, on your favorite podcast platforms. So enjoy whatever it is that you're doing for the rest of your day. And uh, thank you for listening. We'll be back again. Thank you, Gerard. Cheers, Paul. Cheers, listeners. And rest easy.